As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, I mean, you know, it's actually been a little while, I guess, since we've done one of our pure logistics episodes. Earlier <laughs> in the summer, we were doing a lot. We, we've done a lot all year. I just feel like, uh, you know, I, we've probably gone at least three or four without coming back to what is, without a doubt, the, uh, the story of 2021. When you say uh, more than a little bit or it's been a while, I mean, we did do the semiconductor episode like the other week, which I kind of file under the the shortages and bottlenecks um, yeah, umbrella. But I guess it's true. I, it is true. We haven't done a transport episode in a while. And there are some big ones that we haven't um, addressed just yet. And I'm thinking specifically of pallets and barges. But of course, the biggest transport mode that we have yet to talk about and the issues taking place there, it has to be rail. And it's come up quite a bit when we were talking to um, Gene Soroka, the the head of the Port of Los Angeles, for instance. Uh, Whenever we've been talking about gridlock in transport generally, we do tend to touch on rail and some of the issues there, but we haven't talked about it in depth yet. Right. So we kind of have taken this, you know, end-to-end approach. We talked about factory issues that originate in Asia. We talked about the ships. Uh, oh, you know, there's the bottlenecks at the ports. I think latest I saw there's like 72 ships just waiting to be undocked right now at the port of Los Angeles. Then the trucks talked a little bit about barges, although we need to talk a lot about talk a lot about more. But we have not talked about rail. So if we we're going to be completist in our discussion of, uh, <laughs> of uh, U.S. logistics, we have to talk about uh, the rail part of the equation. Yes, indeed. I'm looking forward to this one. I am too. I'm very excited. And we have the perfect guest for it. We're going to be speaking with Ian Jeffries, president and CEO of the Association of American Railroads. Ian, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lot. So look, anyone who's picked up the newspaper or look, you know read the news knows about all the disruptions, particularly around ship, particularly around port particularly around trucking, particularly about the lack of containers specifically. Why don't you just start by giving us the very big picture overview, and then we'll drill deeper, but the very big picture overview in how pandemic-related disruptions 
have affected uh, the flow of rail? Well, first of all, thank you, Joe and Tracy, so much for having me on this morning. And you, you've hit on, based on, on what you listed, you, you've hit on a lot of key key issues uh, and key sectors of the supply chain. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to add to that conversation. I think when you look at what we're seeing in the supply chain right now, which, as you know, is an incredibly sophisticated, integrated, complex process getting goods from Asia into the U.S., into the heartland of the, the U.S., um, and then and throughout. What we really are looking at now is something that really began about this time last year, even, you know, a little earlier in the summer, mid-summer 2020, where once the economies of China and the U.S. started to, for lack of a better term, turn back on, uh, you saw a pretty dramatic influx of goods. And I think it's a combination of a variety of things. Um, if your houses are anything like mine, you got to know the, the Amazon delivery person really well. Yeah. We saw such a massive surge of e-commerce uh, as a portion of our economy. And not only that, given the, the rush uh, to acquire goods, um, consumer goods from, from the stores, the physical stores across the countries as well, combined with the, the shutdowns we saw in factories um, throughout, throughout the U.S., throughout Asia, you saw a really strong snapback in, in production and demand on the international side. And so really about last summer, I'd call it last July, last August, we saw a pretty dramatic uptick in international intermodal traffic. And that has really sustained itself and continued through this year to present day. And I think we're expecting to see it into at least Q1, if not Q2 of next year, based on comments uh, that our, our CEOs have made in the public space. And so what we're seeing is there are certain parts of the supply chain where, where there are some choke points and where there's, there's, there's one choke point, the the supply chain is only as strong as as its weakest link, or it's as its uh, as its most inefficient point, and that that tends to tends to gum up the whole situation. And so, rail is navigating that. Um, I can tell you, in the first six months of 2021, we moved more intermodal products, which is that container traffic, which consumer goods, either e-commerce or or brick and mortar store. We moved more traffic in the first six months of uh, 2021 than we ever had in our history during that same time period. So we are moving a colossal amount of traffic, and we're really the middle piece of the supply chain, the middle miles. We are navigating, I would call, um, some challenges on on both the the port side and and then the offloading side um, with our our partners, but taking steps as others are to, to continue to, to work through this to, to get back and get right-sized and get equilibrium and, and get this thing running as efficiently as possible. That was a great overview. And I want to dig in a, a little bit more into what role rail actually plays in the sort of transport and logistics network overall. But before we do, can you maybe give us a, a little bit more color on the congestion issues that you're facing right now? Are there some numbers that you could throw out. So for instance, Joe in the intro mentioned more than 70 ships waiting off the, uh, you know, off LA port. I'm wondering if there are similar statistics for rail and how those might differ from normal times. Yeah, absolutely. So, so our, our primary role when it comes to the West Coast ports is, 
is you know containers are loaded onto to our trains and brought into the middle of the country, much of them. So think about the the key gateways up and down the the Mississippi River, up and down the the center of our country. Primary being Chicago, approximately twenty five percent of rail freight moves through Chicago, uh, but also Memphis, New Orleans, St. Louis, Kansas City. So those are our primary gateways. But let's take Chicago, for example. And what we are seeing is in a lot of the international intermodal yards. So those are those are the locations that that freight is offloaded from the train, put into a a parking slot and picked up um, by a truck for that last mile delivery to a warehouse or to a or to another location. So when the, the train brings in the containers, that's referred to as in gating. And when the containers are picked up, it's referred to as outgating. And I can tell you that the, the in gates in certain locations are dramatically exceeding the outgates. In other words, we have many more containers coming in that are getting picked up and taken out. And so you can understand how that begins to back things up. And so one of our railroads had over 20 intermodal trains. So think about that. That's 20 trains with approximately, we'll call it, give or take, 200 containers on it. So what is that? Four thousand containers sitting outside the Chicago terminal waiting to get into the yard to unload, but can't do so because the outgates aren't aren't being picked up. So uh, local trucking isn't able to um, able to get that out. That just goes to show you how quickly things can start backing up. I know they've made significant progress in driving the number of trains waiting down, but it's it's sort of akin to the boats waiting, the ships waiting off the coast of uh, the ports of LA and Long Beach. And that causes kind of reverberating effects because when you have trains sitting, waiting to get into the yard, those are trains that should be unloading and should be on their way back to the, the West Coast ports, but can't because our, our, um, our partners in the supply chain, our shipping partners don't have the capacity or ability to, to pick up the containers and get them out of the yard to create the space needed to unload. And so it's kind of a, it's a 24-7 operation for the railroads. And any part of that that, that gums up that 24-7 operation starts to have reverberating consequences back through the network. Just that stat was extremely useful and striking. How much of that capacity constraint is it, okay, with, with, I don't know what the term is. I mean, with ships, they talk about, okay, how many berths there are at the port at any given time. How much is it the sort of like physical space to unload or load a given uh, uh, 20 cars? Uh, and how much versus how much is it uh, the labor and how much is uh, labor itself contributing to some of the constraints and the slowness of these turnaround times? So I would, I would say it's a, a combination depending on where you are. There are certain situations where railroads are hiring additional uh, employees going through the process of hiring additional employees, but there are a variety of other situations where where manpower uh, employee numbers are are not the issue in the least. And what we're seeing again is so so if it's a labor issue, it might be a, a short haul trucker shortage issue, or it might be a uh, a warehouse worker issue. Um, again, because if there are breakdowns in, in those pieces of the supply chain, that directly impacts the ability of a, a shipper to, to get their goods, get their boxes out of the yard to create space for additional boxes. And so I can tell you railroads have taken a number of steps that are far out of the norm than they normally would, which is literally 
creating additional capacity uh, within their yards, paving over tracks in certain areas to allow for additional storage for containers, opening up uh, long dormant intermodal facilities that haven't been used for quite some time to allow for additional capacity. And so we feel like we're, we're taking numerous steps and really we just need the, the system to flow. Um, again, we're bringing in trains of intermodal equipment 24-7, so seven days a week, that X time throughout each day, there are intermodal trains arriving that need to be unloaded. And some of our, our partners don't work in a 24-7 operation. Um, the last mile service, I think when you look at the data, when our yards, our railroads look at the data in their yards, the volume of, of pickups, aka the, the outgating I was talking about, drops pretty dramatically later in the day and drops pretty dramatically over the weekend and then starts to pick back up in the beginning of the week. And of course, the challenge is that the trains keep coming in during all of that time. And so railroads are taking a number of operational steps as well to try to alleviate that or offering incentives to our shipping partners to to come get their goods on the weekend as well, just to keep that throughput going and just to keep the, the spigot on, so to speak, so that we can keep bringing things in, pushing them out uh, into the communities where they're, where the demand is so strong right now. So it's a combination. So could you maybe um, go back to the that point that you um, briefly raised earlier about where rail actually sits in, in the wider supply or transport chain. So my understanding is, you know, stuff comes in through the ports, uh, then it gets loaded onto rails. And basically, if it's heading to, you know, the other side of the country or the interior, it's going to have to travel through rail and it's probably going to have to travel through um, a limited number of hubs like uh, Chicago and, you know, maybe Kansas or Memphis or something like that. So I, I guess my question is, you know, where does rail sit in the broader supply chain, but also are there always going to be choke points of some sort, given that goods have to travel through a limited number of hubs? So let's talk about, so right now we're just talking about this, this intermodal traffic, this container traffic. And I think we need to take a step back and look at rail's role in the kind Mm -hmm. of the overarching economy. And it's important to remember that, that rail is, is moving the goods economy, the tangible economy. So whether it's industrial products, whether it's agriculture products of all kinds, whether it's chemicals, whether it's automotive, uh, Automobiles, rail moves about 75% of finished automobiles, uh, not to mention uh, a very high percentage of a lot of the components that go into automotives during the during the manufacturing process. Of course, going back to the challenges we're seeing in the semiconductor area there, impacting that. And then intermodal covers at this point, probably about half of rail traffic. Um, that has tra- changed over the years. Uh, coal used to amount for approximately 25% of all rail traffic. I would say, you know, societal shifts, market shifts have dramatically reduced that. But what we've what we've grown in place of that is this explosive growth in in consumer goods and, and container traffic. So railroads are are managing all of those different types of uh, of products that they're moving through their pipelines at any given time. And those different types of products need to be moved at different levels of pace based on customer demand. So there are certain commodities that that can move at a more measured pace but your your premium products your your intermodal traffic your your UPS traffic UPS is the largest customer for the rail industry writ large um, that stuff needs to move very quickly and so railroads have designed their networks to to allow for that staggering of uh, different different speed of traffic that's required 
to to meet customers' needs. And so you hit on you know the the relatively limited number of major gateways that that rail traffic needs to flow to. And I would say that's what we're primarily talking about, that traffic that, again, comes from the West Coast and needs to uh, disperse in the middle of the country. And so you mentioned Chicago. We talked about Kansas City, Memphis, New Orleans, St. Louis. Those are the, the, the main ones that come to mind. I can tell you that, that our railroads have built out over the years very efficient systems that allow for a very speedy movement of goods from the West Coast into these gateways. And they're designed as such because those gateways are the ones that have the, the terminal capacity to, to, to sort, shift, and rebuild trains as needed to hand off to the Eastern partners. Or, you know, we're, we're not even talking about the East Coast, but we have a similar situation, uh, inverse situation coming from the East Coast going, going West or into the heartland as well. But I can tell you those these networks have been designed in a very methodical and very intentional way to allow for a very efficient movement of interline traffic into the middle of the country where it can then get dispersed as needed um, to, to its final destination. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So obviously we are in the middle of some sort of negotiations going on in Washington, D.C., although they seem to be very muddled right now. About <laughs> That's a kind way of putting it. <laughs> to, put it to put it mildly, about infrastructure and uh, rail in theory, and I'm sure as you're hoping for is a part of that. It's, it's 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 interesting timing because we're talking about constraints on the economy due to supply side disruption and every form of transportation of goods is experiencing bottlenecks and so forth. What more could be done? You know, obviously, I'm sure uh, your industry would like uh, plenty of money to build out rail systems. But from a realistic uh, standpoint, what more could be done in a more uh, functional uh, political system? to build out rail side capacity in a way that would be productive for the nation. So, Joe, I'm really glad you, you brought up the investment side of things and the infrastructure side of things, because one, one fact that a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that our freight rail system is almost entirely privately owned and financed in the U.S. So what does that mean? That means our, our railroads are investing about 25 billion dollars of their own cash back into their networks every year, which has resulted in, and this isn't me talking, this is, this is others, this is straight up fact. Um, we have the, a freight rail system that's the envy of the rest of the world. It's the most efficient, safest, most advanced rail system, freight rail system in the, in the entire world. And so you juxtapose that against um, the other types of infrastructure, other types of surface transportation infrastructure we have in this country. You know, the, the interstate highway system, which is at this point at least 50 percent uh, subsidized by, by general taxpayer funds. I think we've hit 
about $140 billion in general fund transfers to support that, uh, a system that was historically supported by by user fees, a la the gas tax and other fees. We've gotten away from that. We need to get back to that. Users of infrastructure need to pay for that. You look at our ports, again, largely publicly funded. I would argue, I would bet that the, the folks you've talked to in the port industry would say dramatically underfunded. There's significant investment needed there to increase efficiency, uh, make use of technology to allow for a, a more efficient throughput of goods. And so rail, when we look at infrastructure legislation, we take a little bit of a different point of view. Yes, 100% agree that we need robust public investment into the nation's public infrastructure. Um, because if rail is going to function, and we're seeing this right now, if rail is going to function at its highest level, we need a, a healthy integrated supply chain, a healthy integrated transportation network. So that includes ports, that includes transload facilities, that includes our highways. Again, we'd love for our trucking partners to, to have to pay for the infrastructure they, they operate over. But, uh, you know, that that's probably a debate for another day. But rail is looking at infrastructure legislation more as a vehicle to take advantage of our environmental performance, take advantage of our safety performance, take advantage of our inherently efficient operations, and really making sure that we create a framework, whether it's a legislative framework or a regulatory framework, that allows rail to, one, earn the revenues necessary to invest back into the system to meet current demand and future demand, because freight demand is only going to grow in this country, but two, also allows us to, to innovate our operating models, to deploy new technologies, to create an even more efficient system with the infrastructure we have while also maximizing safety. And so to your, to your second, the second part of your question, what can rail do in a, we have 147,000 miles of, of rail infrastructure in the country. I don't think it's any secret that standing up a, a massive new freight railroad is probably uh, not something you should expect anytime soon, given the challenges in getting right-of-way, et cetera. But railroads can make the investment within their right-of-way to, to maximize throughput. So what does that mean? That, that means adding second, third, in some instances, even fourth lines of, uh, of rail on the rights-of-way. It means extending sidings to allow for temporary parking of trains to allow those premium trains that need to get through um, the space they need to get through. It means investing in our intermodal yards to, to deploy new technologies, increase automation that allows for a, a, a safer, more efficient throughput of goods. So between technologies, between maximizing the infrastructure we have and expanding within our, our rights of way, you know, we have the ability to, to move the amount of traffic that's demanded. And quite frankly, all of our railroads are looking to, to grow the volumes that we're moving because it's good for it's good for the highways, it's good for the public, it's good for the environment, and it's good for business. So, you know, that's the focus right now. So in the interim, when, um, you know, it is very crowded on the railways, there's all this congestion, people are trying to manage it as best as they can. Um, how do the rail companies actually apportion capacity? So one thing we learned from our shipping episodes is that, like, it doesn't necessarily come down to whoever is willing to pay the highest rate, it might come down to um, connections or whether or not you're a big customer like a Walmart or an Ikea or something like that of a shipping company. And I'm wondering if it's a similar deal when it comes to rail. So, you know, I, I can't speak for each individual individual railroads, you know, you know marketing mm -hmm. or decision making for how it determines which traffic is going to move. But I think overall, the system is designed to to move the most traffic in the least amount of time with an emphasis put on that traffic that is paying for this premium 
more just in time type service. Again, you know, there are there are industrial products, you know, gravel, for example, does not normally need to move at the same pace as a, a train full of uh, uh, UPS packages. And so the system needs to be designed to meet those customers' needs, or they're going to look elsewhere to move their goods. And that's the last thing we want as, as our industry. And so, again, I, I, I would just, I would have to point to, to each individual railroad and, and how they manage that process. But at a, at a macro level, that's, that's how things get from point A to point B. So you mentioned the possibility of um, customers moving elsewhere. Is that something that you've seen over the past year or two? Um, you know, given the situation, are there some people who just don't want to wait for railway capacity to get freed up and maybe they switch to something like trucking? Well, so I think the intermodal freight market, by its very nature, by its very name, it is hyper, hyper competitive. You know, that is that that traffic that can flow on either trucks or it can flow on trains. And whether it's coming out of the ports or, or domestically between points in the U.S., you know, the, the customer has very real options. And it could be, you know, it could be rail-to-rail competition. It could be rail-to-truck competition. It could be choosing the, you know, potentially the, the port you want to go into to, to use a different type of, uh, a different form of transportation as well. And so, Absolutely. If, if a railroad isn't providing good service, you know, that business is going to go elsewhere. And when you look at the fact that rail has grown its intermodal offerings to, again, about 50 percent of overall rail traffic in today's mix, that shows you that rail is doing a continuously better job at providing a product that is uh, appealing to to that customer that that has a a wide variety of options, again, whether it's another railroad, whether it's uh, any number of trucking companies out there. And so railroads have done a good job in uh, getting much more predictable in their deliveries, decreasing the time it takes to make a delivery, and really shrinking the distance where rail can be viable. I think the the general cutoff used to be a, a, a goods movement had to be at a minimum 500 miles in order for, for rail to, to ever be competitive. And I can tell you there are many instances around the country where due to operational changes, due to increased efficiency, rail can compete down south of that 500-mile number, um, sometimes significantly down south. And again, that's just that's just the, the class one railroads. We have several hundred uh, regional and what are known as short line railroads around the country as well. And on any given day, they are they're out there working to to win traffic over as well. So the the freight mar- market is uh, is vibrant and hot, and freight's going to go where the price is right and where the service is. I want to uh, pivot just a little bit. You know, when Tracy and I started um, this series, obviously the context was pandemic related disruptions, and of course that is still the overarching context, and basically everyone has been affected. Another phenomenon this year that certainly hasn't helped uh, has been the rise of extreme weather. And uh, whether it's associated with specific climate change or not doesn't change the fact that, you know, numerous stories have been written about rail lines being affected by whether it's uh, flooding, uh, the fires in California and so forth, fires in Canada lingering effects from uh, the hurricanes, Hurricane Ida. I'm curious, like, how much you think, how much of your thinking about the future of the industry is based on anticipation of uh, more extreme weather events and how you're thinking about uh, mitigating against some of those effects? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you're spot on with, with everything you just hit on and the, the, the impacts it's had on, on rail operations, whether the Western fires, specifically in, in certain parts of California, the Gulf Coast, again, you know, it's, it's almost predictable that there are going to be extreme weather events every year at this point. And, and rail, you know, we, we've got to adjust for that. So you can do that a variety of different ways. You can do that by making your infrastructure more resilient. And so what does that mean? It means in, in low-lying areas in the Gulf, you're probably increasing the, uh, the height of the rail, increasing the ballast so that you can withstand uh, a decent amount of standing water. You know, out west with the fires, that's a little bit of a trickier situation, but a lot of it is having alternative uh, routing plans in place. It's having partnerships in place that allow you, if, you're, if your line is damaged via, via fire, you have interline agreements or interchange agreements with other railroads that allow you to temporarily move your goods over their tracks and vice versa. I know one of our biggest railroads out west had a, a, a bridge burned down on its uh, one of its main lines and while they were able to miraculously rebuild the bridge in, I believe, three weeks and have it back up and running, which is a stunning feat of engineering in and of itself, goods had to keep moving during that time. So alternate arrangements have to be made. And so I can tell you that it, it is absolutely, call it climate change, call it you know, anticipated increased number of extreme weather events, it's absolutely being built into the strategic planning, absolutely being built into how we're maintaining our infrastructure how we're planning our, our networks, and it's just a reality that we're all going to have to contend with. Now, I suppose on the, the, the positive side, if we're looking to address climate change, rail's environmental performance uh, far exceeds any other form of sur- surface transportation when it comes to emissions, uh, when it comes to, to fuel usage, um, when it comes to overall environmental impact. And so you know, our customers are cognizant of that. Rail can play a role in helping customers meet their overall environmental targets or emissions targets. But rail, all the class one railroads have all committed to significantly reducing their emissions as well over the next several years and are using a variety of technologies to, to decrease fuel usage, decrease emissions. We're exploring use of battery electric locomotives, use of hydrogen locomotives, biofuels, renewable fuels. Um, all, you know, it's kind of an all hands on deck because we're going to play a role in helping reduce this country's or this globe's emissions and helping our customers reduce emissions, which, you know, to come full circle, hopefully, if, if society can, can achieve uh, the overall goals, maybe we can make, a, make an impact in, on the extreme weather side as well. But in the meantime, resiliency is absolutely key. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. 
Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have a slightly weird question, but is there any way that extreme weather and specifically drought might actually um, benefit rail? And the reason I'm asking is because I remember reading one story um, that said Valet was transporting more iron ore by rail because of lower river levels. So I'm wondering if if there are situations where it could be a good thing for for the rail business. So I, I will say that rail is generally the most resilient form of transportation when it comes to extreme weather events, maybe, you know, the infrastructure burning down, notwithstanding. But, you know, after a hurricane, for example, rail is usually the the first form of uh, of infrastructure back up in operation. Um, after Hurricane Katrina, I know rail for quite some time was the only way to get goods into the New Orleans region. And so I, I would say that is all very temporary. Now, when you're talking about, you know, moving more iron because water levels have gotten low, we have the ability to, to get up and running more quickly than most, and we'll take advantage of that. But, you know, in the example you brought up, I could see a situation where we're providing better service. Maybe we're providing a better rate and um, you end up winning business out of that. Sure. A lot of people, maybe they don't pay attention to how the business of rail has done, but it's actually done like phenomenally well. And if you were to just go on the Bloomberg terminal right now and you were to pull up a chart of, uh, say, Union Pacific and zoom it out, it looks like an Internet stock. I mean, it's just over the last, say, 30, 25 years or whatever. It's incredible. And I think that's the case with a number of these. For people who don't know uh, what the story is, and I would admit when I say people who don't know, I include that myself, but I pretend that I don't. What is the story? Like, why is it, you know, 20 years ago, rail was not thought to be like this particularly exciting, booming business. And years later, they just had just these like massive, massive industry success stories that have made investors a ton of money. So I'll I'll do you one better. Uh, I I won't only go 20 years ago. I'll go back 40 years. Okay, um, even better. Even even 41. So in 1980, what, what's known as the Staggers Rail Act took what was a highly regulated, highly uh, heavy-handed government, federal government interventionist regulatory regime, and partially deregulated the rail industry. And at the time, at that time. Approximately 25% of railroads were in or facing bankruptcy. The infrastructure was in decrepit shape. The industry, quite frankly, was on the verge of collapse overall, literally. And so what, what the Staggers Act did, it, it freed up railroads to, to operate in markets, to charge market rates, to rationalize their networks. Um, in other words, the, the government used to force railroads to operate networks, whether the partner lines, whether there was traffic moving on it or not, whether there was any ability to ever earn any sort of return on your investment or or profit uh, based on that particular line. And the Staggers Act, it freed railroads to to act as as, as normal companies in markets. And what that did is a few different things. One, it allowed them that efficiency increased dramatically. Prices actually dropped dramatically. Today, when adjusted for inflation, rail rates writ large are about 45% less than they were in 1980, and revenues increased. 
And so it took about 20 years for rail to really hit its stride. So when you're when you're you're, you're using that 20 year number, I would say, you know, it, it took about 20 years for, for rail to, to really start to realize the benefits of staggers. And in the past 20 years, rail has been able to to really spring forward in a very positive way. So, you know, we're moving colossal amounts of goods. We're doing it in a very efficient manner. We're maintaining our, our own infrastructure and we're, we're charging rates that are dramatically less than they were before deregulation. So on rates, and this is something that I find to be an important thing to learn about with every one of these discussions, which is uh, market power. And, you know, we talk about trucking and I think I forget the stat exactly, but something like, you know, in the trucking world. By the time you start a podcast and finish the recording, like 10,000 new trucking companies have been formed uh, in that hour. Or if that, if that's only a slight exaggeration. And so there is not a lot of, uh, especially during the busts, there is not a lot of pricing power. Then you get these massive bankruptcy waves. You know, I'm looking at this chart here. Someone sent to me a company like Norfolk Southern is the consolidation. Seven companies event over time. Uh, became what is currently known as Norfolk Southern Union Pacific. It looks like it's like 13 different companies over time. Various mergers became what is now known as Union Pacific. Why has it been the case such that over the last 40 or 50 years, despite this massive uh, consolidation, we've you would not expect to see more competitive pricing. You would expect the handful of big rail players, Norfolk Southern, CSX, Union Pacific, and BNSF, to enjoy incredible uh, pricing power? Because competition's very alive, real, and well. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the, the, the mergers that created yeah. some of the bigger railroads today. Well, a lot of that is there were too many railroads back, you know, several decades ago. There were too many for, for the economy to, to support. And so by by the the mergers and acquisitions that have historically occurred you've you've allowed rail to you have your you know your your primary rail lines um throughout the country um again that have been made much more efficient infrastructure has dramatically improved over the years but then you have this entire economy of regional and short line railroads that are call it for lack of a better term the feeder railroads to to the bigger guys and so You've the, the the economy and um, the regulatory structure has allowed for rail to to rationalize itself, which is inherently you have a, a smaller number of very large carriers, a significantly higher number of regional and smaller carriers that all can um, that can all excel at, at what they do, and so rail to rail competition is very real, very live and well. Intermodal competition, as we've discussed, is even more alive and well. But there are other types of competition, whether it's a, a geogra geographic competition, a, a company choosing to, to site a facility one place over the other, product competition, no better example of product competition than natural gas, almost you know, entirely replacing coal as a fuel source, or not that's an overstatement, but dramatically eating into to coal share being a fuel source. And so all of those issues have, have allowed for the market to, to maintain itself in a very healthy way. And on top of that, as a backstop, we have we have an economic regulator, the Surface Transportation Board, which is a backstop for shippers who, who feel that uh, they may not be being charged reasonable rates and they can appeal to the Surface Transportation Board, who's an adjudicator there. So you do have that regulatory backstop that is a uh, an outlet for for shippers that do have uh, 
uh, concerns about about the rates that are being charged. So overall, that's created a, a very healthy ecosystem. And I'll just point out your, your your comment about you know the number of trucking companies going in and out of business at any other any time. You know, one thing I'm really proud of over the pandemic is that because of the the healthy capitalization of our companies, we were fortunate that we did not have to go to Capitol Hill to ask for any sort of bailout. Our our members wrote it out on their own and. Uh, you know, our traffic, we didn't have the, the 90% drop in traffic that our, our airline friends did, for example, but we saw about a 30% drop in traffic at the, at the trough um, during the pandemic. And it is that, that history and that, that ecosystem that we've discussed that allowed rail to, to ride it out with, without getting that, that financial aid uh, from the government. So I want to go back um, to where we started the conversation with the congestion issues. What's your sense of how long this might actually go on for and what's it going to take to get an improvement? Based on comments that some of our executives have made and certainly folks in other parts of the supply chain, I think most folks think that these volumes or some of these constraints will last into the new year, potentially through Q1, if not into Q2. And that's, again, just based on public comments I've seen. How are we going to get out of this? We're going to get out of it by every part of the supply chain operating at a, a high level of efficiency and a, a high level of optimization. And so, again, I talked about Rails 24-7 way of doing business. Um, the ports don't operate like that. Now, I did see news recently that the, some of the West Coast ports are going to be expanding hours um, for, for longshoremen shifts, are going to be expanding hours for truck pickup, which is a good sign. It's a good step forward. And we'll, we'll see what sort of impact that has. On the, on the other side of the supply chain, this, this last mile delivery, as we talked about, shippers getting their goods out of the intermodal yards to allow for, for throughput to continue. You know, that, that might be a much trickier issue because it, it's a very localized challenge as far as drayage trucker availability, as far as warehouse capacity, warehouse worker. You, you go out to Chicago land right now, the, the millions of square feet of warehouses, practically every one of them has a for hire sign. You go to some of those warehouses, which are completely full, and they're storing containers on chassis in their parking lots. So what, what's the problem with that? Well, that's taking up a chassis that could be brought back to the intermodal yard, picking up another container and getting it out of the yard. So until we can work through some of these issues in smaller parts of the supply chain, I think you know it's going to be a challenge for us to hit max capacity and max efficiency. And it's something we need to do because you know on the bright side, the economy, the consumer continues to seem to have cash to spend. And, you know, hopefully we can keep this strong demand going for a while. We just need to be able to support it as a as an overall supply chain and, and as an economy. Can you talk a little bit about uh, hiring right now at at the rail companies? I mean, every industry seems to be having trouble hiring rail jobs, I think, are uh, considered to be pretty good jobs, union jobs. They seem to be less physically taxing, less stressful on families than, say, truck dri- truck driving jobs, which sound extremely uh, difficult from a lifestyle perspective. Can you talk a, about, a bit about where the industry is in terms of its uh, staffing goals? Sure. So, one, you, you hit on a few key points. We are almost an entirely collectively bargained industry and have very productive working relationships with our unions. Average wages and compensation 
for a rail worker are roughly one twenty to one hundred thirty thousand dollars. So these are these are very good paying jobs in the in the manufacturing slash industrial sector specifically. Um, that's why you have multi generations working in rail. There are areas where railroads are looking to hire, and there are areas where you know where, where staffing levels are are where we want them to be. And yeah, I mean you, you hit the nail on the head that. I think every industry is, is trying to bring people on board right now. And, and railroading, look, it's a challenging job. It's a 24-7 operation. It's a 147,000-mile outdoor factory floor. Um, so it takes a certain type of person who, who has that interest. But I think on the bright side, we've seen once people get into the industry, they stay in the industry because it is, it's a, it's a highly compensating industry. You're, you're, you see what you're doing. It's very tangible. Uh, you're literally moving the economy. And so while there may be some temporary challenges and pockets around the country, you know, we'll work through that. And railroads in, railroading always has been and always will be a, a really good place to work and a place where somebody can earn a living and support their family. And so that attraction at the end of the day is going to be what keeps us having the high quality people we have out on the railroad. You know, you're thinking about disruption and there are people who fantasize and more than just fantasize are actively working on the idea of one day fleets of self-driving trucks. And of course, self-driving trucks would be more efficient than normal trucks and presumably could have a lot of competitiveness uh, with rail itself. What's your thoughts on sort of like out there technologies 20, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 years from now? Uh, do you keep tabs on these? Do you worry about them? Could that be something that in the medium to long term of the industry is a uh, becomes a meaningful threat? Oh, it's absolutely a competitive issue. I think, you know, there are almost as many autonomous uh, trucking companies that start up every every day as other trucking companies. But um, look, that that is a huge focus. Um, you're seeing progress in the trucking industry. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but it is uh, it, it is something that's midterm, I would say. And railroads got to compete with that. Now, when you think about autonomous technology, railroads operate on a fixed guideway in a largely closed network. You know, a truck on the highway is interacting with motorists at every direction. A railroad, other than, you know, going across uh, at grade crossings, is really not interacting with the public. And so to us, rail is a very natural place for automated technologies. And we just at the end of last year recently completed a nationwide build out of a technology called positive train control, which really is an automated system that uh, that will override the the engineer um, if he or she breaks work rules. It'll automatically stop the train for for overspeed or incursion into to work areas, things along those lines. We've also been deploying technology that that acts as almost a cruise control or a fuel management system. Uh, on the locomotive as well. So it's maximizing the fuel efficiency uh, throughout the trip. And so you pair that with a, a number of other either on-train or on-track technologies that rail has deployed or is deploying. And we're at a position where, you know, the train is moving in a highly automated state already. And so we're fully prepared to engage in that battle the important thing for us is that we need the federal government, whether it's the legislature or whether it's the Department of Transportation, to allow trucking and rail to operate on equal footing when it comes to technology deployment, automated technologies, et cetera. And you can imagine, you know, we have some folks who have a vested interest in making sure the, 
the number of employees on a on a train is is held constant regardless of the the technological advancements and we think there needs to be some flexibility there because technology is only moving forward not only in the rail and trucking industry and in every in- industry around the economy and we need regulations and rules that allow for that to happen because not only are there business benefits there are dramatic safety benefits as well and that should be the focus of everybody Ian Jeffries, thank you so much for coming on. I learned a ton about the rail industry from you and really appreciate you coming on Nodlot. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ian. Sure. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks, Ian. So, Tracy, you asked what, you know, what was probably like the most important question, which is like, okay, when is this all going to ease? And, you know, we've been asking, (laughs) we've been asking some version of that question now for like six months, I would say, if not longer. Yeah, I, I feel like everyone is sort of like settling on this after the Lunar New Year kind of idea. Like that seems to be the consensus, like after early next year, hopefully things will start to ease. So I guess we should like mark that in our diaries that if if things don't seem to be improving shortly after um, early February, then uh, we may have these problems for a long while. Yeah, let's mark that down as uh, (laughs) as a point where we can hope. But on the other hand, like by and large, and every once in a while, it's like, there have been these tentative signs of easing, like there'll be like a week where like the prices of shipping rates go down or the number of ships waiting in the L.A. harbor go down. But by and large, things keep getting worse. And it's just so clear that like all of these different industries which intersect are compounding. And when we when Ian talked about sort of like the wait times that exist uh, for the rail yards in Chicago, and that sounded so much like some of the things that Gene Sirocco was saying about some of their issues with getting the actual car uh, containers back to ships in L.A. I just don't feel like like I do think things will ease at some point, but I've like becoming more pessimistic. I guess I would say that there's like any sort of like natural mechanism for it to ease because it's also mm-hmm. like inter interlocked. Yeah, I mean, well, Ian touched on this as well. You get this sort of cascade effect. So, you know, even talking about like one problem in one rail system is going to end up or in one part of the railway system is going to end up affecting all of it. But then a problem on the rail system itself is going to end up affecting what's going on at the ports or the barges um, like Gene spoke about earlier this summer. There is something also interesting about rail is, and of course, Ian is biased, but there's something interesting about rail as an industry that sort of seems to work very well from a sort of like public goods perspective, like, okay, rail shareholders have done very well. We know that. You look at the stocks, rail employees seem to be doing well. It's a heavily unionized industry with a high level of pay. Rail customers seem to be doing well because despite the consolidation in the industry from dozens of different rail lines to really just four big national rail lines, According to Ian, you know, pricing power remains competitive. I feel like there like must be some some lesson in there from like a regulatory perspective about how you can have an industry that 
I don't know. Like, it kind of seems like the various stakeholders of this, customers, employees, shareholders, all seem to be doing well. And I'm trying to, like, figure out what the catch is. I'm sure there is one. I'm trying to compare and contrast the U.S. rail system with, like, the rail system in the U.K., which maybe we should do a UK rail system episode at some point. Do you know I used to cover rail for Bloomberg in uh, in London? I probably, I think, no, I, I thought, you, I, I only knew you covered airlines. Yeah, I covered all transport. I did airlines, airports, cars, and rail. But anyway, um, maybe we should do, maybe we should branch out from our transport series and start doing transport around the world, not just different modes of transport, but, you know, rail in the U.S. versus rail in the U.K. Actually, you know, what we really need to do soon is a, uh, a European power episode. Oh, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. That's a good one. No, it's serious because it's yeah. like I keep reading about all this, like the wind isn't blowing and natural gas prices. So let's get that on the agenda, too. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, um, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.